0: Uh, You can take that copy of God's Word and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. We are, of course, going to be continuing our studies through the Sermon on the Mount and, and just one last time, if you wouldn't mind standing, we're going to be looking at verse 20, so I'd appreciate it if, as in Nehemiah 8, when the law was read, the people stood if we would stand for the reading of God's Word. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Join with me in prayer. Father God, Father, we thank you for the privilege to gather here, uh, to sit under your word. Dear Lord, I I pray that you would uh, give us the grace that we need uh, to do this high thing that we've been called to. Dear Lord, give the grace to the preacher that he needs to preach in truth, love, uh, boldness with conviction. Father, would you not bestow grace upon the hearers here tonight, uh, that by the powerful work of your Spirit they may receive spiritual nourishment from you. Your God, all is in vain if it is not done unto your glory. Father, we need you to do this. For apart from you, we can do nothing. We ask these things in the name of thy beloved Son. Amen. Thank you. you may we see seated. A word that is seldom used in our modern vocabulary, and I think this is sad, is, is the word righteousness, the word righteousness. Now, sure, if you've been listening to these sermons or if you attend Bible studies or things like that, then you probably do hear the word more often. I will grant you that. I mean, it's it's a biblical word. But righteousness is a concept that seems to me to be completely foreign uh, to the mind of today's modern secular people, to the mind of the world. Perhaps it is because of the fact that we have such a materialistic uh, worldview. Uh, per, virtually everyone in the education system today is a, is a Darwinist and believes that the earth coincidentally came into being and that modern life forms are just the random result of a long and lengthy evolutionary process and thus if we are just stardust zooming through the sky if we are just fizzing conglomerations of atoms and molecules with no rhyme, with no reason, if we are just accidents, if we are just the descendants of monkeys, then righteousness would be a rather foolish thing to spend our time talking about. I mean, because think about righteous compared to what? Righteous according to who? It was C.S. Lewis who said, that you cannot tell that a line is crooked unless you know what a straight line Looks like if we are nothing more than the descendants of fish and there is no higher power, if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell below, below us and above us only sky, as one man imagined, then surely righteousness is not something that should ever cross the mind of any rational, reasonable person. First of all, how would you even define it? And without God, what do men and women seek to do. That is to become autonomous. Autonomous. A law unto themselves. That is governed by no other. But beloved if you've been around this fellowship for any length of time. You know that there is so much more to life than that. Uh, we, we know better than that. We know that Jesus Christ. The one who created us who formed us, knit us together in our mother's wombs, the one who predicted his own death, burial, resurrection, and accomplished it, that, that very specific Jesus, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The fact of the matter is that there is a God in heaven, Yahweh, He has created us all. Every beat of your heart, every breath of your mouth comes from Him, and He has written the work of His law on your heart, and He commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe in Him and to obey Him and to truly live righteously, that is as He defines it. And so tonight we continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount, and we will be looking at at various forms of righteousness and the kind of righteousness that God requires and how it is that you, you can attain it Uh, because this is a gift that is being offered. This verse, verse 20, serves as a transition in the sermon just to deal with the literature here. Uh, In verses 17 through 19, Jesus has been establishing and making very clear the fact that he has not come to abolish the law, but rather he upholds the law. He defends the law as good. And I think we see the reason that he does this is so that in the last part of chapter 5, we understand that it is not the law of Moses, which he is rebuking, but rather it is the way that the Pharisees had abused the law with their traditions. In our last sermon, we spoke about the goodness. We spoke about the perpetuity of the law. That is that the law Uh, continues to be relevant although it is in a new sense uh, in a different way than it was for the old covenant people the law still remains relevant for us and and one of the things that i mentioned in that last sermon was what we would call the third use of the law the third use of the law is a reminder of what that is it is that when we as christians are saved by grace alone through faith alone of no work of our own the powerful working of the Holy Spirit who creates faith within us, who creates faith in your hearts so that it is a gift to Him, we then, as new creations in Christ, seek to obey Christ. And so we can use the law when interpreted appropriately to see how it is that God would have me live before others. And as a brief reminder, I'll tell you right now, what are the first and second greatest commandments? Love, Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. God is very, very concerned with not only that we love him, but he is concerned that we love other people. That, and, and as a matter of fact, the way that we love other people, specifically other Christians, is to be grounded in how it is Jesus Christ has loved us. Uh, that is why the Christian church should be marked as those people who love one another. And so, we want to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We want to love God. Well, how do we do it? The law tells us how. That's the third use of the law. It it shows us what love actually looks like. And so, not that the law justifies us, but those who are justified by God's grace can use the law to... Obey their God, their Lord, whom they love and who has loved them. Now, here is something about God's law that people do not understand, and it is because they do not spend very much time reading the law. The law of Moses was not merely an external thing. The law of Moses was not merely an external thing. Now, there were many external, outward, visible ceremonies in the law, do not get me wrong and I don't want to take away from the newness of the new covenant or anything like that. We understand that in the kingdom of Christ, we have the law written on our hearts in in, in a brand new way. Yet, even the law itself, even if, like, read the book of Deuteronomy, read the law itself, and even the law stresses the necessity of an individual having their heart changed. The law itself stressed the importance of of having true devotion to god of to have true faith to have true love in god that arises from inside we know that circumcision was given as a sign to abraham and this is carried on in the mosaic covenant and and what the physical act of, of circumcision did was represent not only the distinctiveness of god's covenant people from the surrounding nations but also it signified the, the cutting off of that which was impure or unholy. But yet Deuteronomy 10.16 says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. That is, there is impurity in the heart which needs to be dwelt with, dealt with. There is some, your, your heart needs to be made such that it is pleasing to the Lord God. So there we see the necessity of what we would call regeneration. That's a biblical term. It just means to give new life. Jesus said you must be born again. And and we talk about the fact that it wasn't just the, the physical bodies of the Israelites which needed to be different from the surrounding nations and clean from impurity. God wanted their hearts to be changed. So to put it in our modern perspective, God does not just want you and I to look different from the world. He wants our hearts to be different. As a matter of fact, let me give you some more context for that verse. Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. And, and so what do we find in that passage? Well, does God call on his people to obey external commandments and things like, this, like that? Well, well, of course, they are to obey all of the statutes of the Lord. Yet God also commands the people of Israel to fear him and, and to serve him not just with their bodies, but to serve him with all their hearts and with all of their hearts souls. As a matter of fact, if we look at the end of Deuteronomy, there is a section that we call uh, the curses and, and of the law. And there's also, basically what you have is, is you have curses for disobedience and you have blessings for obedience. Now, the list of the blessings is, is very, very short and the list of the curses is very, very long. But in Deuteronomy 28, verse 47, it says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck till he has destroyed you. Now that's like a tough verse. It's like one of those tough things that we don't like to hear, but, but what is God so angry about in that passage? Not just that the people would disobey Him, but that they would not serve Him with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Do you know that God hates a hypocrite? That's why He can say in the prophets, your burnt offerings I abhor. Why? Because the people were offering sacrifices as the law said, but their hearts were impure. Those sacrifices did not represent what was going on inside of them. There was no true faith. God does not want that. He commands you to serve him with joyfulness, to serve him with gladness of of heart, to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. That that then, that's what true righteousness looks like. True righteousness looks like when you serve God from a heart that loves and reveres him for who he is and for what he has done for you. Now, in the text in Deuteronomy chapter 10 that I read earlier, Moses not only lays out God's general sovereignty over the earth, that that the the heaven of heavens belongs to him and, and that type of thing, But he specifically identifies his sovereignty in choosing the Israelites over other people. Think about it. God did not have to choose Abraham as the father of a nation. He he could have chosen anyone he wanted, but yet he decided to choose Abraham. So he decided to choose, and then look at Abraham's descendants. You see, not even all of them were numbered among the lineage Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And, and so God has a very, very specific lineage that, of people that he chooses over all others. And, and, and this is to serve as a reason why the Israelites should cut off the impurity of their hearts and to love the Lord with joyfulness and gladness. We as Christians should have hearts that love and revere God, for who he is, what he is, that He has chosen us, not because we were better than anyone else, as the Israelites were a, a stiff-necked and stubborn, rebellious people, but because it was God's sovereign grace and mercy to which we owe our salvation. Now, coming then into view with the majestic holiness and the love of God by the work of the Spirit in our hearts, all of this ought to aspire such an adoration, for God that we make it our constant ambition to serve and to please him keeping all of his commandments. As Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that that's that's a promise by the way. Now I lay this down as a foundation for understanding the righteousness that God truly requires. And it's really the righteousness that the law requires. The Old Testament itself talks about these things. So so yet again, we understand that when Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees, it is not the Old Testament. It is not the law that he is rebuking. In verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus then is going to tell us that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, now that we have briefly gone over what the righteousness God requires was, what is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees like? Well, you see, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in contrast to what we read in Deuteronomy about um, cutting off the impurity of our hearts, the righteousness and the religion of the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day was truly a, a merely vain external righteousness. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, the trouble with the Pharisees was that they were interested in details rather than principles, that they were interested in actions rather than motives, and that they were interested in doing rather than in being. Matthew Henry writes, they aimed at the praise and applause of men, but we must aim at acceptance with God. To demonstrate the truthfulness of these claims, the best place that we can look is that really great passage in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, I'm not sure that that passage in Matthew 23 really looks like the Jesus that is presented in most children's Sunday schools or, or, you know, that type of thing. But in Matthew 23 and, and through 24, what we get is Jesus's really his fiery rebuke against the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jerusalem, as well as the promise that he would come back in judgment and destroy the city of Jerusalem, which, of course, took place in eighty seventy, because Jesus is not a false prophet. And now what's interesting is that Matthew 23 starts off with Jesus saying in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Now, I need to stop right there so I can clear something up. Um, That is a verse that Roman Catholics will use to try and argue against the doctrine of sola scriptura. Now, how do they do that? Well, the argument is that there is no seat of Moses in the Old Testament, but what this is is a divine tradition that was passed down. And so Jesus is telling people to believe all divine traditions uh, that were passed down by the scribes and Pharisees. And then the Roman Catholic will say, and you too need to believe all the traditions that have been passed down by the Roman Catholic Church. Well, here's the problem with that. Now, scholars will disagree uh, as far as the specifics of this in terms of what the seat of Moses actually was. Uh, some think that Jesus was just using a sort of figure of speech here, but what I would say is a more compelling theory based upon some archaeological evidence that we have is that the seat of Moses was an actual seat in the synagogue where the teacher would sit and read from the scriptures. So when Jesus tells people to do and observe all they say, he's saying, when they sit on the seat of Moses, do and observe whatever they tell you. That is, when they are faithfully teaching just the scriptures, that's when you can listen to them. Uh, he, he is not saying to obey whatever it is that comes out of their mouth. As a matter of fact, in other parts of the New Testament, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for advancing their traditions to the same level as Scripture. Now, that, what that does is it reminds us, before we keep reading Matthew 23, Jesus, and I don't know how many times I'm going to say this, He is not criticizing the Old Testament, he's, he's, he's not he upholds he affirms the goodness of the law but he is still going to push this criticism against the pharisees and in verse 23 jesus says woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness these you ought to have done without neglecting the others Verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And then verse 28, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What is he condemning there? The hypocritical nature of their entire religion, that on the outside, they, they, they looked good. I, I mean, they kept up with the best of them. But what was going on in their hearts? Hypocrisy. Lawlessness. You see, very plainly, that it, it, it does no good for you to look good before others. It does no good for you to, to just simply do things. Your heart needs to be changed. You see, that there is the crown jewel of the Pharisaical religion, All of this emphasis on outward appearances, yet no emphasis on inward conformity to the will of God. Jesus says that unless our righteousness exceeds this, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us all then examine ourselves. Let us all look into our own hearts and ask the question, well, what does my religion look like? What does my spiritual life look like? If you're here in this room right now, then obviously you're a person that comes to church and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but remember, Judas literally ate dinner with Jesus Christ himself. And as a matter of fact, when Jesus announced to his disciples that one of them was going to betray him, what did they ask? They All of them, they said, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? You see, no one even suspected that the betrayer was Judas. And yet, Judas though he looked good before everyone else, though no one expected that he was going to betray Christ, Judas died and, and went into everlasting judgment. Because looking like a Christian will not save you. Actually being a Christian on the inside, circumcising the foreskin of your hearts, that is what God requires. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Many there are, People who think themselves to be right with God because they've said a prayer, because they attend meetings and the like, and they do all the right things, and they look at themselves in the mirror and they say, I am a good man. Well, maybe they don't even say that. Maybe they just say, you know, for the most part, I think I'm an all right guy, and yet their hearts remain dead. Dead. The question is this, have you come to the point in your life where you've realized all that is in you is worthless and the only thing in you that is worth anything at all is the need and the dependence that you have upon the grace of God and His mercy and His love. When you understood that because of your sin you stood condemned before the throne of judgment and you cried out to God in mercy. Read through Jesus' Beatitudes again and ask yourself, is this me? Is this me? Am I the man who was poor in spirit, who mourned over his sin, who hungered and thirsted for righteousness? Or is my religion, merely that I, I do a couple things here and there, and maybe if times are really tough, I'll say a prayer, and, and I think my mom had me baptized when I, when I was a child, and my, my friend, none of that will save you. shall do you no good. And I shall prove it with this parable of Jesus that's found in Luke chapter 18 says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And that's specifically what he's addressing there, is that there can be someone who, they, they're doing all the right things, and yet what do they do? They look at others with, with this hypocritical judgment because they, they, they criticize the speck of sawdust that's in their brother's eye, and yet they have a plank in their own. That's a specific thing that's being addressed here. We'll look at that later in Matthew 7. So Jesus, he tells this parable to those who trust in themselves to be righteous, yet they treat others with contempt. They look down on others. And the reason that they can look down on others is because they're not truly righteous on the inside. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, notice something about the Pharisee in the parable. From the outside, if you were to just look at his life, he had a religious life of devotion that would probably rival every single person in this room. Yet, even that was not enough to tip the scales and remove himself from the righteous judgment of God. Why then? Why then do so many people who don't even meet that level then look at themselves? They don't even do what the Pharisee did. They don't even go as far as he did. They don't even try to look religious. They don't even try to look good, and yet they rest contented within their hearts that all is okay. And I was talking with another minister one time, and him and I came to this incredible realization. We realized that no one goes to hell anymore. We, it doesn't matter who it is, where they were, what they did, what their lives looked like. Every funeral we've ever been to, no matter, no matter who it was, we heard a message about how that person was happy in heaven, whether, whether they were Christian or not. And beloved, we can't do this. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy it. You must understand that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Yes, the Pharisee who fasted twice a week, who tithed all that he had, who was often in prayer, their righteousness was insufficient. You must go beyond. You must be planted on higher ground. You must be planted on a firm foundation. You need true righteousness. And so many out there, just let the days and let the nights go by and go by and go by and go by and and the clock, it keeps ticking and the sun goes down and the moon is covered with the cloud and eternity creeps and it gets closer and it gets closer and it gets closer. And so many give no thought at all. They have their entertainment, they have their possessions, and thus, why should they be concerned with where they're headed? Little do they know, but yet, if they didn't know, would they even care? Beloved, you must be sure that you've acquired a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. I've already addressed those who are apathetic, but perhaps there's another person who needs to be reproved. Some people would hear my words that the Pharisees fasted twice a week, and I say that that wasn't enough, and then they in their minds think, okay, so I have to fast three times a week. Well, no. Uh, that's, That's not it either. Because Christianity is not about doing things to earn favor with God. It's not about doing more and more things so that you think you can appease God's justice. These past two sermons, we've talked an awful lot about the law of Moses. Well, do you know what the law of Moses required for sin? A blood sacrifice. A blood sacrifice. Now then, if the Spirit... Is working in your heart. You may be crying out, Well, what then can I do to be saved? What then can I do to be saved? A a Philippian jailer once asked that question. There were two men of God there. And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. You must believe the gospel. You must believe that God the Son took your place on the cross of Calvary, that He died, was buried, and rose again. That whoever believes in him might have eternal life. That, that's how you acquire true righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what we call the great exchange. We give our sin to Christ, and he gives his righteousness to us. God the Father treats Jesus on the cross as though He had committed my sin. God treats me like I lived Jesus' perfect life. And it is by our faith. It is by our faith, it is not by works, it is by our faith that Christ's righteousness is, is given and is imputed to us. Some people don't understand faith. Some people don't understand faith. Some people think that faith is like this good thing that you do which, which earns God's favor. But that's not the case. Uh, the fact that you believe the gospel does not make you any more favorable to God, and then he like, decides to forgive you. But what, but what happens is God grants you faith. Faith is the gift of God, says Ephesians 2. And therefore, faith is the means by which the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. There's a real sense in which, although yes, we believe, but even our faith itself is not our own doing. Faith is God's precious and sweet gift to us. God gives us faith so that through our faith we are saved and all the glory and all the credit goes to Him and none goes to To me. And so you see that faith is not another work. Faith is the instrument which God uses in our lives that we might receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Paul, writing to the Romans, quotes the prophet Habakkuk and says, the righteous shall live by faith. And as a matter of fact, that phrase could even be translated, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. This then is the righteousness which you must acquire, the perfect spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ which is imputed to you by faith. For it is a perfect righteousness that far exceeds anything that the scribes or Pharisees could ever dream of. It was not something they could comprehend. It was not something that they could understand although their own scriptures repeatedly bore witness to who Jesus was. The righteousness of Christ is so perfect a gift that, that it cannot be taken away. That it cannot be taken away. Think about that. Everything you have, you will lose. A young man who boasts in his strength that he can move and that he can lift great weight. Well, guess what? He's gonna get old. And he's gonna lose his strength. A young woman who are in her vanity boasts of her stunning good looks. Well, she it's a certain age, and I'm not trying to be mean. <laughs> she gets a certain age and the looks fade. Uh, you know, her face begins to wrinkle, the make the makeup no longer hides it. And one day she begins to realize, along with the man who's losing his strength and the woman is losing her beauty, what, they, what do they realize? Well, these are signs of aging. Their bodies are breaking down due to the effects of the fall. And so what do they do? Well, they begin to, okay, my strength, my looks, they're going to go away, but, but maybe if I cling to my possessions and, and my things and, and how many things that I have or my wealth, and so they try and they try and they try to amass wealth and make their existence on earth all the more pleasurable, but then they die and it all goes away. The government, the banks, they come in, they, they dry up all their belongings, all the money, and, and then it's, it's just It's gone. It's like if you hear my voice right now, it means that you're alive. If you're alive right now, it means one day you're going to die. uh, And I ask you, what will matter on that day? You may have gained many things in your life. But the main thing you should have been concerned about is the one gift that can never be taken away. And I promise you right now that if you acquire it, it will never go away. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is a perfect gift. It is an eternal gift. It is not perishing like the things of this world. It is not vanity. It is worth far more than you could ever buy or sell. If you have the righteousness of Christ, I promise you this right now. When you die, you will go to meet Him. And those other things, they just won't matter anymore. So then the call that is upon all of us tonight is this. To believe. To believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in His name. Believe in His gospel. Thou shalt be saved. Now here's the thing about Christians. When God saves them, He saves them from their sin. He makes them righteous in two ways. The first way is what we've already discussed, the the gift of Christ's righteousness to us. But the other is that he, He will make you live a righteous life. We call this, sanctification. We can call this Christian righteousness. Through the process of sanctification, God actually is going to work in the lives of Christians to mold them, to mature them, to make them holy as He is holy. Uh, Right now, I'm teaching through John chapter 15 on Sunday mornings. And one of the things that Jesus says, he, He talks about Uh, The branches that bear fruit, which are the true Christians, the Father prunes those branches so that they bear more fruit. Uh, A phrase that gets tossed around a lot in Christian circles is, well, you know something, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, You may have heard that, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And people who say that are absolutely right. Would you like to know what that plan is? I will tell you right now. Romans 8.29, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's God's wonderful plan for your life, is to make you like His Son. This His plan before time was ever created, before the world was ever formed. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. His plan for your life is to make you like Jesus. This wonderful plan Well, it might involve a lot of pain might involve a lot of suffering might involve sickness might involve affliction after all he is trying to make you like jesus who suffered greatly in this world but that is his plan for you now if 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 that does not sound appealing to you if you wanted me to tell you that his wonderful plan was that you would be happy healthy wealthy and wise and all all these different things well you never spent much time reading your bible because If you did, you would know that the Son of Man had nowhere to rest His head, although the birds of the air had nests and foxes had holes. And you would know that virtually all the apostles and the prophets died horrible deaths, but in His own special way, according to His own plan, His own will, God is going to see to it that you do become holy, that you do become like Jesus, and that your righteousness, your Christian righteousness, will greatly exceed that of the scribes. Pharisees your heart will be cleansed from all impurity you will be given the, the regenerating sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit you will be washed you will be cleansed your desires will be changed you will be molded to the person God wants you to be you see the Pharisees thought that The physical circumcision was enough, but they did not understand that there needed to be an inward reality that that sign pointed to. But Christians, we have had that change of heart. In Colossians 2, we read, "...in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. You see, God has made you alive in Christ Jesus. He's forgiven you of all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And, and, And now that you are free from your sin, God will equip you to use that freedom to serve Him with joyfulness and with gladness from the changed heart that you have received. Your worship of God and your obedience to God will not be a merely external show like that of the Pharisees, but it will be true holiness without which the Bible says no one shall see the Lord, true righteousness like that of Jesus Christ Himself. Niels Hemmingson writes, The effect of Christian righteousness, its newness of spirit, the fear of God, true godliness, invocation, true humility, patience, and a beginning of obedience towards God's law, insomuch that a person being justified by faith desires nothing so much as to obey God. To be brief, his chief pleasure is in the law of the Lord. After he, makes no, after he knows that damnation is taken away by Christ's merit. You see, some people have this idea that, well, I'm just going to say a prayer, uh, get saved, like my ticket's punched, I'm going to heaven, I don't have to worry about it anymore. But that's, that's not how it is. God has begun a good work in you if you're a Christian, and he is going to see to it that that work will be brought out to completion. He has a plan for you in this world. He has a plan for you in this life, and it is to serve His kingdom. It is to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, to be a peacemaker among men, to bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's that's our priority. That's that's our focus. Earlier I I quoted from Ephesians 2.8, but what's sad is that people often neglect to read the verses that come after it, so we'll we'll, we'll do that. Ephesians 2.8-10 Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. You see that? We are His workmanship. We are His thing that He has formed for his own purposes. As another scripture says, he is the potter and we are the clay. And I, I, think, I think that one of the most important texts in the entire Bible is found in the second chapter of Philippians. When we are promised that God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Where does the desire to obey God come from? It doesn't come from me. It comes from God working in me for his good pleasure. As Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. We daily, daily, daily need to be dependent upon the grace of God and the goodness of the Holy Spirit. And that, then, is the real defining character or element of Christian righteousness, the reality of the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit. We now live in that age which was promised long ago, and Ezekiel 36:25 says God is he's prophesying the new covenant and he says I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what the Pharisees didn't understand. The Pharisees thought that I caused myself to obey God. No, 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 no. The new covenant promise in Ezekiel is this. God causes you to walk in his ways and to obey him and to obey his rules. And that even includes the greatest commandment, which is to love him because we were born in Adam. I'm, this has nothing to do with anyone in here, but I, I'm very concerned. And this is because probably I, I just need to stay off of social media and the Internet. But I am very concerned with a lot of people in the Christian community who, who because they hate the sovereignty of God so much, Want to deny the reality of original sin that we were born in Adam. Let me tell you something. If you don't have Adam as your covenant head when you're born, then you shall never have Christ as your covenant head when you become saved. The reality is you were conceived in sin. That's what Psalm 51 says in sin did my mother conceive me. You were born with a sin nature, and that sin nature absolutely hated everything about God, did not want to obey God. That's why Romans chapter 3 says that no one seeks God. And so you need to understand that if you do seek God, the reason that Jesus can say, seek and ye shall find, is because you're seeking because he's given you the grace and if he has given you the grace to seek him well guess what he who has began a good work in you is not going to abandon it but he not only gives you the grace to seek him but when you do seek him you have rest why you can say come unto me all ye who are weary and heavy laden i will give you rest my yoke is easy my burden is light why because he's done it all he's the one who's doing all the work And so if that is the case, that God has given us a new heart, if he's given us a heart of flesh, if he's put his spirit within us and he is causing us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules, our lives should look like those things are true. I mean, should we not then, after receiving the perfect righteousness of Christ, His gift to us, a precious gift that, shall, that no one can take away, should we not, after receiving that, have a, live a life that far exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? You see, here's the thing. They were religious yet unregenerate. Christians are religious and regenerate. So should we not then from the bottom of our hearts have a burning and insatiable desire to please God, to love Him with all of our heart, to love Him with all of our soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves? Let us remember that this is God's will for our lives, is to make us like Christ, the one who has perfect righteousness. Now, is the world going to like it Are they going to like you? Are they going to approve you? No, absolutely not. They will ridicule you. They will revile you. They will persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus' account. And if you don't like that, all I did was quote verse 11. But dearly beloved, learn to grow content within your heart on that matter. That you may be ostracized. That you may be separated from The world. Let it bring you rejoicing. Because understand this, as James says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And if you are a true Christian, you will begin to stop doing all those things that you do just to fit in, just so that you can be socially acceptable. You will stand up, you will be loud, you will be bold for the truth and for righteousness. And your confidence will be unshaking. And your confidence will be unmoving. Why? Because your fide, confidence, it means with faith, confide, your fide, your faith is in Christ and and in the perfect righteousness that He gives you, that which far Far exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, a gift that shall never be taken away, and thus you are planted as a tree by the water, mighty and strong. Take comfort in the Lord and encourage one another to do the same. For God has called us into a covenant family together. And one of the main fruit of the Spirit, one of the main evidences that we have been given this righteousness, I'll tell you, is that we have a love for each other as Christians. For God is love. Let us then live unto His glory, and let us rest in His grace. Won't you join with me in prayer? Father God, Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word tonight. Dear Lord, I, I just pray that the truth thereof was honored, was made known, was, was made clear tonight to those who hear. Dear God, let, let even my own preaching, God, not be like the, the boasting of, uh, of the Pharisee in and, and your son's parable, Father, that I am not doing and saying these things merely for some external reason, but that I have a true and genuine faith within my heart. Let it be the same for those who listen. That they are not just listening to um, have some sort of just good religious feeling, but that there is a true burning passion within their hearts to be changed and to be conformed to the image of your son father god glorify thy name and all that we do is in the name of your son we pray amen